Well, good morning. I see all of you guys uh, didn't realize our sign-up changed a little bit this week, and there was the smoking and non-smoking section. <laughs> so, so watch that a little more carefully next week. But it is good to be with you all. Uh, thank you for taking a risk with your life and limb to come and, and try to breathe this air together. But it, do, it does show how good it is to be together physically in one place with the people of God. Because uh, even just as we were singing, uh, there is there's something special about corporate singing uh, that is unique. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys belt it out with your windows rolled down, going down the highway when the radio on, but it's not the same as hearing people around you singing the same truths. Uh, it has a way of uniting our hearts as we do worship our King. So would you pray with me as we begin together? Our Father, we thank you for being the great God above all gods, and for appointing your Son to be King of King and Lord of Lords. We know that he reigns supreme. Your sovereignty extends throughout the world to every action of every creature, to every particle of ash and every cloud of smoke. And so we trust that you move all things together according to the counsel of your will and according to your good pleasure. And we've come today to worship you. And we ask that even as we've joined our hearts in song, so you would knit us together around the teaching of your word, and that we would leave today more determined by your grace and out of gratitude for your gift of Christ to walk humbly in accordance with what you have taught us and to bring you glory in all things. This we ask in the name of your Son. Amen. Well, if you still have enough oxygen left, I would invite you to attempt the rarefied air that you will breathe when you stand. Uh, if you would grab your copy of God's Word, again, if that's ever a difficulty, please do not feel guilty to remain seated. But as you're able to, to honor the reading of God's Word, please stand and turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. We will begin with the last verse of John chapter 7, verse 53. So read along with me. John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53, everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law of Moses... Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was, in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, 
I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, sin no more. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Alrighty. There we go. Forgot to turn my notes on. This would have been an interesting extemporaneous experience. Well, this morning as we come back to this passage in the Gospel of John, we come to a very interesting passage indeed. Uh, If I were to ask you, let's see, I may have to, there we go. If I were to ask you, what do social justice warriors, third wave feminists, lawyers, and critics of the accuracy of Scripture all have in common? See, generally, those sorts of questions, you can just immediately say, well, they all like bacon. But this is actually one of those instances where that's probably not true. (laughs) But what they all do have in common is a keen fascination with our passage this morning. A keen fascination with our passage this morning. Social justice warriors see our text as proof that the message of Jesus was about letting love overcome the injustice of legal systems. Feminists see this passage as Jesus hinting at the need to liberate women from the patriarchal norms of social and sexual stigma. Lawyers see this passage as a fascinating case study in how to apply law codes in difficult circumstances. And critics of Scripture like to point to this passage to prove that we can't be confident in the accuracy of our Bibles. And so, as you might imagine, that gives us a lot of potential places to go today in our time in God's Word. But I want to focus our time, and I think this will, Lord willing, address most of these concerns, focus our time on looking at just two specific goals in our passage. And that is this. This morning, I do want to encourage us with our confidence in the accuracy of the Bible that most of you even now hold in your hands in some some fashion, whether analog or digital. And I want us this morning to be amazed again at Jesus, both from the perspective of one of his disciples watching this play out, and be amazed at Jesus from the perspective of the woman in the story watching this play out. And so we'll begin this morning by talking about the exciting subject of brackets and footnotes in your Bible. Uh, Many of you, especially some of you kids this morning, maybe even you notice as you were reading the Bible, what is that doing there? You notice that there's perhaps a bracket at the beginning of chapter 7, verse 53, and another bracket at the end of chapter 8, verse 11. And even if your translation doesn't have brackets, most of you will have a footnote right there at the beginning of verse 53 that says something like, Later MSS dot, that's short for manuscripts, later manuscripts add the story of the adulterous woman, numbering it as John 7.53 to 8.11. That's what the footnote in the NASB says, and footnotes in other translations are very similar. So what is that all about? And I want us to enjoy for a moment opening the window here into the glorious and nerdy world of preserving and transmitting the Word of God. And I want to show you briefly why I don't think these verses that we're talking about this morning were actually originally a part of the Gospel of John and therefore are not inspired Scripture and explain why that fact is actually not a threat to my absolute confidence in the accuracy, authority, and inspiration of Scripture and then tell you why I still think it's worth looking at these verses anyway. 
So that's, that's my goal, and uh, we actually need to talk about these verses, so forgive me, we're going to have to go fast, and if I end up muddying the waters more than trying to clarify them, I'd love to uh, do lunch or do Zoom or do whatever sometime, and we can, we can get into all the fun weeds that you can get into on this stuff. But to answer the question of why is this passage here, why do I believe it's not actually a part of John's original gospel, why shouldn't that concern us? Instead, why does that actually increase our confidence in Scripture, and why is it important? We have to start by asking, how did the Bible get to us? How did the Bible get to us? Well, we know the Bible begins its process of coming to us by the Holy Spirit inspiring the writings of Scripture through human authors. We can read about this in the book of Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 20 to 21. It gives us the process. In that, that passage it says, But know this first of all, that no prophecy is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. The Holy Spirit is the one who inspires Scripture. Those writings then, they were called the autographs, those initial writings of the biblical authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they began to be circulated among the churches and then copied. And then those copies were copied. And then those copies of copies were copied. And so on and so forth. All the way up until at some point a group of scholars gathered together and tried to arrange an accurate, complete gathering of copies of Scripture and then translated that into the language that you have in the Bible in your hand. Un, un, uh, unknown to many, the Bible was not actually inspired in English. And so it, at some point it had to make the jump from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic into the language you have in front of you, most likely English, though there are some other translations in the room this morning and other languages as well. So we know with confidence that those original autographs, those original writings by the inspired human authors, because that was a process superintended by the Holy Spirit, that was a perfect work that was done there. But not all the copies that have happened in history since are also perfect. Because unfortunately, we're involved and humans make mistakes. Sometimes we add notes in the margins that end up getting copied into the text by the next person. Sometimes we think we're helping the Bible out by smoothing over a difficult spot. Sometimes we make mistakes and we see a verse up here that starts with a word and a verse down here that starts with the same word and we accidentally skip over everything in between when we're copying because you have to remember, until the 1500s, there was no way of typesetting something and knowing you were going to get an exact copy with every press. There was no printing press. Everything had to be copied by hand by a human copyist. And so that can lead to, oopsies, getting into your manuscript. So how can we be confident that the verses we have in our Bibles this morning are the ones that God intended for us to have? Well, the good news is that the same Holy Spirit who inspired Scripture in the first place is the same Holy Spirit who has overseen the preserving and protecting of His Word all along the way from that day when He inspired Scripture to today when you hold it in your hands. And He's given us a great gift to help with the process. And that gift is lots and lots 
and lots of copies of Scripture for us to compare. Not counting just scraps with verses on them, we have about 25,000 New Testament manuscripts extant today, meaning still in existence today. That doesn't count the tens or perhaps hundreds of thousands that have been destroyed over time. Still today, we have about 25,000 New Testament manuscripts. By comparison, the second best attested ancient work of literature, if you want to say besides the Bible, what ancient work of literature has the most remaining copies today, it would be Homer's Iliad with a whopping 643 none of which are closer than 1,300 years to its actual writing. In fact, if you turned each manuscript that we have of the New Testament into a, into a book or into a case about one inch thick, you could fill a shelf running the full length of all four walls of this auditorium this morning and do that eight shelves deep. That's a lot of copies to look at. So what good are all those copies? Well, you can use them to trace and confirm accuracy. And I'm thankful to all of the godly gifted nerds in history that have given their life to this, and we still need them. And maybe some of you young people in this room are like, this actually sounds a little bit exciting. This could be your future. And it can be more exciting than it sounds. You can use these copies to trace and confirm accuracy and to catch mistakes. For example, you can say, we're looking at all these manuscripts and they all say the same thing. And then all of a sudden, we find in this one area, this verse pops in that wasn't in any other manuscript. And all the manuscripts that are copied in this one same place keep copying that same verse. Huh. We're pretty sure... That was an oopsie. And we can confirm that because we can say it didn't occur in the older manuscripts and it doesn't occur in the manuscripts that were written anywhere else. It just shows up in everything that came out of this one monastery, for example. Having so many manuscripts to compare allows us to do this kind of work. And we have manuscripts of John, even in particular, going back to only about 30 years after John himself died. It's a long time. So we can do a good job tracing how those manuscripts developed over time, and it's remarkable how few changes there were. In fact, according to one renowned New Testament scholar, the statistical confidence rating that we have about the copy of the Bible in your hands right now is having all the verses that God intended you to have is more than 99.9%. You're not going to be anywhere in that ballpark for any other document in the history of the earth. The Holy Spirit has protected and preserved his word. So what's up then with this particular bracketed section? Well, throughout the history of the Bible's copying and transmission, there has been great care taken to make sure that when in doubt, leave it in. I played a left fullback on soccer in high school. And the mantra they taught us was, when in doubt, kick it out. Right, when in doubt, kick it out. If you don't know where your team's at and the ball's coming through and there's a forward, you just clear it out and then figure out what to do when you reset. You don't do that with Scripture, though. When in doubt, leave it in. 
When in doubt, make sure that you never remove anything that has any possibility of having been part of the original text, but mark it as something that is at least suspect. And that's how the early Bible copiers and transmitters treated passages like this that they said, hmm, we don't find this in our older manuscripts. We're not entirely positive this was supposed to be in there. And until we can get to the bottom of it, we'll copy it because we don't want to ever take the chance that we left a verse of God's word out, but we're going to mark it so that we know this is one to be careful with. There are only a handful of verses and only two significant passages in your entire Bible that that even applies to. This was very rare. One is the end of the book of Mark, and the other is the passage we're looking at this morning. These verses, like I said, are almost certainly not a part of John's original gospel. If you're really nerdy, uh, they're present in medieval Greek manuscripts, but they're almost entirely absent from all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us. They're missing from all the old Syriac and Coptic gospels, from many old Latin, old Georgian, old Armenian, that's where I'm from, manuscripts. All the early church fathers omit this narrative, meaning that the early church fathers don't talk about it as being inspired. When they comment on John, they go immediately from 752 to 812. So there's a lot of reason why we, should, we can say pretty confidently this does not appear to be a text that was from the original Gospel of John. But the fact that we can say that with such confidence points to how much evidence the Holy Spirit has allowed to pass down to us to say such things. And so when I see a bracketed passage in my Bible, I don't go, oh no, I wonder if I have the whole Bible in my hands. I say, man, it's amazing that even as overly cautious, as overly inclusive as Bible transmitters have been and Bible copyists have been, we have an unbelievably high confidence and accuracy on how, the God, how God's Word got to us today. I want to show you a couple of fun pictures. These are pictures of actual old Greek manuscripts. They're kind of written in a cursive type thing, so they're called minuscules. But I want you to notice, if, you're, if you can kind of see these goofy little markings on the side of these verses, they're called obeli. And you only find them next to this passage in all of these old manuscripts. And it was their way of saying, yeah, not sure, not sure, not sure, not sure, not sure, not sure. And they marked all the verses of 753 to 811. This isn't the only one. We've got others as well, and they do the exact same thing. There's these little obeli, which is plural for obelisk. Learned a thing. That's kind of cool. Running down the margins next to these verses. And then as soon as you get to 8.12, you can notice they stop because they're saying we now are returning to where we are confident that this is the original accurate text of Scripture. So does that make sense? It's pretty cool stuff. And some of you might spend your whole life studying such cool stuff. That'd be great. <clears throat> so why do I think that this passage ended up in our Bibles, even though it was probably not in the original book of John? Well, like I said, even though our, our evidence or testimony is that it was not part of the original gospel of John, it is a story about the life of Christ that goes all the way back to the second century, to the 100 years after the life of Christ. It's a very old story and a widely dispersed story. It's a story that's in keeping with the character of Jesus and with the character of the religious leaders of his day. It contradicts no other passage or teaching of Scripture. And it shouldn't surprise us 
that there were many stories circulating around the ancient Near East about the life of Christ that didn't end up in the Bible. John himself told us about this in the book of John, in our gospel, in chapter 21, verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. That's kind of cool. And we even have a reference to one of these things in the Bible. If you've got your Bible, if you look at Acts 20, 35, you will see this. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Most of your translations have no footnote for that quote. And those that do, if you look them up, you will notice it's not even close. Because we actually have no record in the gospel of when Jesus said this. It was from one of the teachings, one of the experiences that Jesus had with his followers that was not recorded in the gospels. And so what I think we have here is a passage that is almost certainly not scripture, but something that very likely did happen, and we'll explain a little bit later, I think very likely as a part of a story collected as part of Luke's research that he was doing even for his own gospel writing. I think this passage illustrates principles that the rest of Scripture teaches clearly and is profitable for us to look at is sort of one of the lost tales of Jesus. And so if you want to just kind of have this passage, if nothing else, just be a teaser that when our Savior was on this earth, his ministry was so much richer and broader than even we are aware of, even with all the incredible wonder that the Gospels show us. So that was a little long, and it was definitely a little nerdy, but I hope that it did encourage you in your confidence in the accuracy of the Bible. And again, I'd love to hang out sometime if you want to talk more about the transmission of the human text. You can also get Metzger's, the text of the New Testament, if you really feel like getting your thick spectacles out. That's a fun book. Uh, and we can dive into that. But for this morning, I'm now eager to get into the text itself and see what we shall see. I want to begin looking at this passage and breaking it down kind of into its chunks because it's a really neat contained story. And like every good story, it begins by setting a scene. And the scene is set in verse 53 through verse 2 of chapter 8. It says this, Everyone went to his home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. So verse 53, everyone went to his home. We don't actually know exactly when this took place. It's likely because the events take place with Jesus going from the temple to the Mount of Olives back to the temple, that whoever initially added this story into the Gospel of John said, well, here's kind of a good break where Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the Feast of Booths. It kind of feels like it matches up. Some people say it might be better to fit into his Passion Week summer. We're not exactly sure when it took place, but it took place after everyone went home. And Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And there's already a contrast beginning to be set up. There's, a, there's those that go home to comfort, to food, to rest. But Jesus retreats to solitude for prayer and spiritual refreshment. And that was not just a, a singular event. It was his habit. In Luke chapter 22, we find Jesus going out to the the Mount of Olives on the night that he was betrayed, and it says, and he came out and proceeded as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. And when he arrived at the place, 
he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And they said, what are you doing, Jesus? This is weird. No, they said, okay, this is what we do. This is our custom. This is normal for Jesus to retreat, to find a quiet place, to be alone with his father and to pray. That's the scene beginning to be set. And then in verse 2, you have the characters enjoined. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and began to teach them. This is also the habit of Jesus. He came to teach. And like the other rabbis of his time, he did so when he could in the temple. And he would come into those outer courts of the temple and he would sit down. And when he sat down, that meant it's time for the instruction to begin. And all of his disciples would gather around him and sit to listen. And then other curious passers-by would begin to crowd around behind them because when the rabbi sat down, it was time to listen. And this was, again, Jesus' custom. And that's, I think, a good just example and pattern for us to imitate as well, looking at the life of Christ and the regular rhythms of his life. It was a life of discipline and faithfulness. And personally, I'm challenged by the pattern of spiritual discipline and faithful ministry that characterized the life of Jesus. And I'm not coming and telling you this as somebody who's doing a particularly great job at this. In fact, my wife confronted me on this this week, saying, hey, we've got some areas of spiritual discipline we need to work harder at in our family to establish as normal patterns. This is something that I, I've been challenged by Jesus with this week. He didn't wait until major events were about to happen to start praying or wait until someone opened an obvious door before he began to minister to people. He built these things into the normal, daily, intentional pattern of his life. He had a life of discipline and faithfulness. And that's a good pattern for us to follow him with as well. And secondly, be ready for surprises. Jesus is about to be <coughs> excuse me, interrupted in his teaching. And if at some point my voice just cuts out, Paul, you can take over and finish for us. I would tell you where my notes are, but we both know you wouldn't use them, so... <laughs> uh, Jesus is about to be completely interrupted, waylaid while he's teaching his followers. He's going to be put to quite the test. And it's not a test that he would have been planning for the next day. We need to as well be aware that tests and opportunities can arrive at any time. And not to see those as annoyances, but in anticipating that God will bring such things along in his timing in our lives for his glory and our good, we ought instead to pray frequently like Christ did on the Mount of Olives with his Father for grace and courage when the time comes. Christ didn't have to ask for grace so much, but we do. How many of you have gotten waylaid by like a major parenting moment at a very inconvenient time? Anybody? Yeah, that happens. Or a significant health trial when you go to the doctor for a routine checkup and then all of a sudden your life is upside down. Or perhaps a door opens for the gospel and you get into a conversation with a neighbor you haven't been able to talk to for a long time and all of a sudden you've got a chance to say something and you're not sure what to say. Or perhaps you've been trying to take a stand for Christ and you're facing persecution in the workforce and getting passed over for that promotion or you're being ridiculed by your co-workers. These tests come upon us in the normal rhythm and habit of life, and we need to be 
ready to face them. And we'll learn a good pattern for how to do so by looking at Christ this morning. Because speaking of surprises, here comes Jesus's surprise now. So let's move from the scene to the setup and see how this all played out. In verse 3, we read this, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. So we meet the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were trained writers of legal documents. They served as experts on technical matters. Uh, Some of the scribes were Pharisees. Some were not. Both groups often moved together, but scribe is sort of a title, a job position. Pharisee is an affiliation with a religious group. So on a Venn diagram, there's some overlap there. But these two folks like to hobnob together. This phrase, the scribes and the Pharisees, though, is one of those phrases that makes us go, hmm, I don't think John wrote this because nowhere else in the entire Gospel of John, though he's often identifying the groups that are moving around together, does he use the phrase, the scribes and the Pharisees? In fact, throughout the rest of the New Testament, the only time you see that in the Gospels is Matthew once directly quoting Jesus saying something, And then Luke, who uses it three other times as a description of the crowd. And so, again, I I tend to think this passage is likely one of those stories collected by Luke when he did all of his extensive research for his gospel. And you can read about his research right at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He describes it. So that's who we're looking at, the scribes and the Pharisees. And they bring this woman caught in adultery and set her in the center of the court. And then they confront Jesus saying, The law says stoner. What do you say? And can you imagine if you will try to put yourself back into this scene? So you're sitting there, you're teaching, you look up, and here comes this parade of scribes and Pharisees. With them would have been their usual entourage of of disciples and students. With them would have been everybody who was curious of what was going on at this great march of the scribes and Pharisees. And there... In the front is one utterly dejected, humiliated, and terrified woman. They aren't pulling Jesus aside. They're like, hey, Jesus, come here. We have this question. We have a problem. We caught this lady in adultery. You're a teacher of the law. What do you think we should do here? No, they come marching and place this woman in the center of the court. This is to be spectacle. They are trying to call Jesus out publicly to make a statement. And we are immediately then suspicious of their motives. But we don't need to be suspicious because we're actually given their motives in the next verse. Verse 6, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Now, the confrontation may have been a surprise, but the motives are not a surprise. This is a trap. They are trying to pin Jesus in on three sides. On one side is the law. They know in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy chapter 22, 23 to 24, it says this, if there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city and you shall stone them to death. The girl, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he has violated his neighbor's wife, thus you shall purge the evil from among you. 
Other passages also prescribe the death penalty for other permutations on the adultery formula, but this is the only passage that directly calls for stoning. So on one side, they're trying to pin Jesus against God's law, saying, hey, you, you need to agree to stone this lady. But on another side, they're trying to pin Jesus against the people. Because the death penalty, by all indications from the time, was almost never enforced anymore. For Jesus to call for this woman's death would have been seen as unusually harsh and perhaps a betrayal by the one the people had identified as having been so kind to them and to their suffering. Remember Luke 7.34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was viewed as an outcast from the elite of his day because he was somebody that would constantly spend time with the sinners with those who were looked down upon by the elite, and therefore the underclass owned Jesus as one of them until he stopped giving them free Lunchables. But we talked about that a few weeks ago. The third side they're trying to pin Jesus in on is the Romans, the law of the people and the Romans, because the Jews could not kill anyone without the permission of the Romans. They were occupied. And the Romans did not use stoning typically, That was a Jewish execution. And so if Jesus were to call for the woman to be taken to the city gates and stoned right under the eyes of the Romans in their fort overseeing such things, then they would immediately step in and deal with Jesus for the Jews. You see how they're trying to box him in. If you recall, even when they're trying to have Jesus executed, Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death. That's the setup. Do you see the trap? If Jesus does not acknowledge the law of God, he cannot be a righteous teacher or a righteous man or the Messiah. If Jesus condemns the woman to death, he will likely lose the support of the people. If Jesus leads an execution by stoning, he will likely be captured by the Romans. Prickly, isn't it? All eyes are on Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees, they've got a smug grin, thinking themselves to be oh so clever. The students of the scribes and Pharisees are watching to see this brilliant trap sprung. The disciples of Jesus are looking anxiously to see how their Lord will dodge three bullets at once. The crowds with interest are waiting to see who is the best chess player. And finally, the woman, alone in the center, racked with guilt and fear and shame, waiting for words that for her are literally a matter of life and death. And then verse 6. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. First, I have no idea what Jesus wrote on the ground. If you want a list of guesses, you can email me. But I'm inclined to answer, like my professor in college, Dr. Wong, used to say, there are five views on this verse. But scripture does not say, so I will be silent. I loved him for that. He always knew precisely how many views there were on the topic, but as scripture did not say, he wouldn't tell you any of them. That was a great man of God. Second, I love this response by Jesus. I love this response by Jesus. This is not what a trapped and fearful person does, right? Jesus doesn't raise his voice. How dare you? Try to bluff his way out. 
He doesn't try to escape. He's not protesting that the question's unfair. He just straight up ignores them and starts scribbling on the ground. Some might have thought he was buying time because the trap was so good. But in reality, as we're about to see, he was just not yet dignifying their question with an answer because the trap was so pathetic. A couple quick lessons for us here. Good people are still targeted by those with evil motives. Even if we seek to live with integrity, live with love, to do good and to honor God, those who hate truth will find a way to attack you. Those who will not bow to God's version of reality will still try to get you to bow to their version of reality. Expect this. When that happens, you didn't do anything wrong. This isn't an anomaly. There's no cause to panic when the trial comes. And secondly, when that trial comes, a great pattern of approaching it is to diffuse the situation first. In the same way a gentle answer turns away wrath, Proverbs 15:1, a moment of patience at the beginning of a hostile exchange can make a world of difference. Jesus ignores the first confrontation, and that simple act of stooping down and writing takes a great deal of the teeth out of the scribes and Pharisees' bravado right off the bat. Plus, it's an excellent opportunity for us when we're in that situation to pray like crazy and to ask God to give us divine wisdom so that we can respond not according to the complexity of our attackers who are always going to try to make the situation as sticky and confusing as possible, but instead to respond according to the simplicity of God's word. And that is what Jesus does. And it's a pretty simple solution in the end. Look with me at the solution to this sticky situation, this dilemma of justice that Jesus is in the process of defeating. At verse 7, we read this, but when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Verse 7 says they persisted in asking him. And so he finally straightens up and turns to address them. The scribes and the Pharisees are reduced to that very awkward task of repeating themselves. <laughs> that just has to be a little bit hilarious, right? So we cut this woman in the very act of adultery. The law says, Stoner, what do you say? Excuse- Jesus? <laughs> Hello? What do you say? Can, can, you, can you hear me? Is this on? Right? I wonder if Jesus was smirking as he was writing in the dirt. (laughs) Jesus waits until the appropriate moment. And then he straightens up. And know for sure that in that moment and in the gaze with which he fixed the scribes and the Pharisees, any confusion as to who had authority in this confrontation was removed. I wonder how many of those that faced Jesus in that moment knew instinctively, even before their brains caught up to that, that they had made a terrible miscalculation before Jesus even had spoken a single word. And not many words were necessary. Jesus solves the dilemma over justice here in a single sentence. He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he stoops back down and begins writing in the ground again. Pause again to put yourself in this woman's shoes. 
She is quite literally mortally afraid of condemnation at this point. And can you imagine the jolt of terror she likely felt when she heard Jesus' words? The people Jesus was speaking to were the most outwardly righteous, meticulous, obsessive keepers of God's law in all of Israel. And I tend to think she likely closed her eyes and began to wrestle with the likelihood that she was about to be put to death in just a matter of minutes. She knew she was guilty. She knew she was caught. And she would have known that the words of Jesus were in keeping with the law. Did she think perhaps Jesus to be extremely callous in stooping down again to write in the dirt? Did he care so little about her and her life? And what shock do you think she experienced by what happened next? Verse 9, when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Without a word of response to Jesus or to the woman, the entire entourage begins to trickle away. Significantly, it is the eldest who realize first that they have failed, and not only failed, but been humiliated and shamed in the process. And slowly it dawns on the younger ones as well, and I wonder if any of them ever had the courage to explain what had actually just happened to the people that would have followed them confusedly out of that court. So what did just happen? Well, it's helpful to remember how law and justice worked according to the law of Moses. First principle of jurisprudence in the Old Testament is this. If a crime is committed, it has to be proven on the basis of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 17.6, on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. You cannot just trump up a charge against somebody and get them executed. You had to have multiple eyewitness accounts of the crime. A further safeguard against simple spite in accusing somebody else was that whoever brought the accusation needed to be the first one to throw the stones. We read in Deuteronomy 13:9, But you shall surely kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterwards the hand of all the people. And this wasn't like you could pick up a pebble and be like, ah, okay, I don't like blood, I'm out of here. In stoning, typically the first shot was the fatal one. The subject was put down into a pit or laid down on a stone themselves and a big boulder was smashed onto their chest, crushing the chest and bringing about death typically after the first stone. The other stones were the ceremonial ones, the token of participation in the execution. And so if you said, I charge this person with a capital crime, you knew in your head you were going to have to be the one to look in their eyes and crush them to death. That makes you think twice. Finally, if it was discovered that despite both of those stipulations, two witnesses, and that you personally had to deliver essentially the killing blow, if you still were willing to press ahead, if it was discovered that a charge had been fabricated or the deception had taken place, the false witness was subject to the full penalty of the crime they had lied about. Deuteronomy 19, 18-19. The judges shall investigate thoroughly, and if the witness is a false witness, and if he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he had intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. 
So how does this affect the situation? Well, what's been missing from this trial from the beginning? The other half of the crime. Adultery, simply put, is not a game of solitaire. This woman had been caught. The scribes and Pharisees were proud to announce in the very act of adultery. If this were true, then they had stumbled upon not one, but two individuals engaged in sin. But only one was brought for, quote, justice. And this is what's going to be the rope that hangs their case. It's like a child tattling on their sibling for having their eyes open during prayer. Hmm. And how exactly would you know that? There's two options here. Option A, they had brought this woman to Jesus on hearsay alone. If that is the case, they do not have the two or three witnesses necessary to convict her, and the case must be dismissed. And the scribes and Pharisees, the lawyers and law experts, are shown to have complete ignorance of the basic foundations of Jewish law. Option B, they had direct eyewitnesses in the crowd. But if they identify themselves, they will have to answer for their sin in either participating in the crime by staging it or even perhaps being the other party to the adultery or by being complicit in the cover-up of the man who was also involved that they would have witnessed and known as well. They would have both then disqualified themselves from bringing charges against the woman and would be liable to charges themselves. This isn't Jesus saying, You don't get to enforce law unless you're perfect, as some people have interpreted the passage to mean. No. Jesus nowhere undermines legal systems. This is Jesus saying, you want to play the law game? Then do it God's way, and I'm going to make sure you do it right from beginning to end. Wow. Only Jesus saw this ending coming. How easily an impossible trap was turned into a resounding defeat by simply holding people to the standards God has already clearly established in his word. Always do things God's way. Always do things God's way. His way is always the best. We begin with a commitment to obey scripture And then our course through any situation, no matter how difficult, how tricky, how complicated, how impossible, is clear. Because I don't have to worry about the consequences out in the outcome. I only have to worry about, will I reach the other end of this trial with the approval of God? And if so, he is going to be the one that determines the outcome of this situation. Not wicked men. Not circumstances. We do it God's way and we are committed to that. And if this morning you find yourself on the horns of a dilemma, perhaps that's your opportunity for application today is to go home and pray and say, God, this is a hard one for me. Show me your word and glue my heart to it and walk with me through this one step at a time. Secondly, don't don't be a scribe or Pharisee. Don't do this to each other. Don't lay traps for one another. It can be so tempting to attack one another in this way because it has the pretense of righteousness and seeking justice and just wanting to follow God's word. 
as a sham veil over ego and pride and even cruelty. And some of you have experienced this. Some of you have come to see that God's people can sadly sometimes be the most vicious. Sheep with teeth. Galatians 5, this was not a new problem. Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. Don't do this to one another. If one is caught in sin, Matthew 18 is the process. You start privately, humbly, pleadingly to win your brother, to win your sister. We do not put on spectacles to shame each other. Be careful of this in your parenting. Be careful of this in how you talk to your spouse. Be careful of this in how you try to get a leg up at work. Be careful of this even in the ways that we cultivate an unhealthy kind of competitive spirit among friends. Don't enjoy the public humiliation of others. Jesus here has silenced and defeated his attackers. It's been pretty pretty definitive. But there's still one person left from this setup. The bait on the trap still remains there in the middle of the dismantled pieces. And it is not a nameless, faceless prop, but it is a sinful woman who is now alone with a righteous Lord. And that's what I want to look at last this morning is the sinner. The sinner. Verse 10, straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go, from now on, sin no more. He begins by straightening up from his second bout of writing in the dirt. He's been just writing while everybody is filed out. And I imagine there was a very different expression on his face this time. Perhaps it's from reading too much C.S. Lewis, but I tend to think this woman had the simultaneous experience in meeting eyes with Jesus of seeing real hope and real love and feeling utterly exposed and guilty all at the same time. Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? This is a legal and just conclusion to the mock trial. Jesus asked a simple question. Are there any witnesses here who will testify against you? And she answers simply, No one, Lord. And then Jesus dismisses her case from this human court then I do not condemn you either. Without the testimony of the witnesses, she is to be set free even if guilty. Jesus does not condemn her. But look how it ends. Go, from now on, sin no more. Here's where we find out definitively that she is guilty. She is guilty. Even though her case had been justly dismissed from this human court, her sin still mattered. She still needed to go and sin no more. Jesus is not teaching us here that it isn't important to address sins like adultery, that we're just not allowed to ever judge anybody. He's emphasizing that a sham court without truthful witnesses should never be allowed to destroy a person regardless of the actual guilt or innocence of the accused. That process matters. And that matters if you're trying people in the court of Spokane or if you're trying people in the court of popular opinion because we like to lynch people all over the place. And that's not okay. 
But here's the real scary reality. This woman had had not one but two brushes with death this day. The first was with the murderous villains among the scribes and the Pharisees, and Jesus had defended her against their sinful trap. But her second brush with death was the fact that she had just stood face to face with the holy, righteous judge of all the earth and had been guilty and had deserved death and had lived. As we prepare for communion today, we need to stop for a moment and remember that we all, without exception, have been this woman. Guilty, ashamed, and face to face with Christ. This Christ. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Had this woman been appearing before Jesus on this last day, she would have been finished, and so would we. But she had encountered the judge on a mission of justice and mercy. The mission we read about in John 3:17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. And as we come to communion, we remember the price of that salvation. When Jesus looked into the scared eyes of that adulterous woman, he saw sin so heinous it deserved eternal damnation. And when he looks into our eyes, he sees the very same thing. But he also saw a soul that he chose to love so much he would spill his very blood to make atonement. There is no God like our God, not in the imaginations of all men who have ever lived. There is no Savior like our Savior, not in the history of all the ages of the earth. And so as we prepare to remember that sacrifice by which the judge declares to us, I do not condemn you. Would you stand and sing of him and hang on to these elements and we will remember together in just a bit.